Exodus 20, verse 1. God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And that's the preface. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, even in these short words, you, you give us much that we would do well to pay attention because it's full of comfort and uh, your kind offer to be God to your people is overwhelming considering who you are and all that you have done already and will continue to do for your own prized possession, uh, your Israel. We pray, Lord, that uh, as we hear these words, again, explain to us that uh, we would prize you even more as our God and that we would delight in your love for us and every good thing that you give us. And uh, Lord, uh, have us to understand what a privilege it is to serve you, and especially in the liberty that you provide in your Holy Spirit through the mediator, Jesus. So bless this reading and bless the understanding of the reading and its explanation and its application. We pray through Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. The preface to the Decalogue. Jehovah himself, the Lord himself, in a theophany, explains why you are bound to keep all of his commandments expressly because he is alone God and your God and your Redeemer. Let me, let me state the lesson plan for this evening again. In the preface to the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue, the Lord, Jehovah himself, in a theophany, explains why you are bound to keep all of his commandments expressly because he alone is God and he is your God and he is your Redeemer. So we've got two sermon points. The second point is expanded, but uh, it, uh, it's fairly straightforward uh, because it is uh, merely a preface, but uh, here's what we need to understand. The first point of the sermon is that the Ten Commandments were spoken directly by God before all Israel. The, the words, the, the law, I've already preached how unique this section of Scripture is, not only in the Old Testament, but in all of the Bible. Uh, but we see here God, in speaking uh, Himself, uh, in the theophany highlights his own authority and not Moses' authority. He is not <laughs> entrusting any glory to any creature whatsoever. Now, of course, Moses would write the five books, the Pentateuch, by himself uh, and by inspiration. He may have had some help near the end because he's talking about his death, and I don't think he came back to, to finish off the five books. <laughs> But Moses would write the Pentateuch through inspiration. And, the, of course, all of the Scripture is inspired by God. And we have it uh, originally uh, on papyrus and other parchments. Uh, but uh, the Ten Commandments were unique uh, because God first spoke them. And he spoke them not through a prophet, but he spoke, he spoke uh, to the whole nation. And... Other than thunderings and things like that that were more localized and, and, and more widespread to a few people, 
uh, it's just very few times where the Lord spoke to all of his people in an audible voice. Um, Moses would complete what the Lord would give him through inspiration. But these words are both dictated by God and written out by God. So it, underscore, it underscores their, their importance. And it, of course, also the preface was, was, uh, is afforded the same authority and uh, importance. And so it's, it, it is also, in all of these studies, when you look, you should be looking as, as to who starts the conversation. And all of this covenant uh, making and covenant uh, arrangements, it's the Lord who initiates the covenant. We as sinful creatures, or even as, even as, as sinless creatures, we are in no position, though, though we be blameless, though we be sinless, we are in no position to, to uh, cut a contract with God. We are not in any sense equal parties. <laughs> so it's God who initiates and God who speaks first. Now, if those of you who are in business know about business negotiation, you know that's it's important protocol. Uh, I mean, depending on where you are, if you're in Japan, if you're in other places in Europe, there, 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 are, some, there are some rules about how one approaches uh, a contract in, in an agreement. In heaven, God initiates the covenant just as he initiated the original covenant of works with Adam in the garden. God first speaks the terms of Adam's lease, as it were, in Eden. And of course, uh, everything is reasonable and equity with and, and rec- equitable with God. So Adam acquiesces in that and and lends his amen. But uh, just remember, this highlights God's authority. It, it's not Moses. Uh, this is not Moses' law. It, it's God's law. We don't sin against Moses when we break the Ten Commandments. We sin against God. The Ten Commandments were spoken directly by God before all Israel, underscoring the importance of these ten words. Uh, this is a transcript, not of God's essence, because God's essence is spirit. There's no transcripting of spirit. Uh, it's, not, uh, it's not of the essence of God in terms of his immensity or his aseity, that is to say his, his having existence of himself. Even a, a transcript uh, of his uh, uh, eternality. Any, no, it's, it's not that. But it is a transcript of the Ten Words, the Ten Commandments, are a transcript of God's moral excellence. And it is a true true, uh, transcript. Now, God is of himself is infinite in all all of his uh, attributes, including his moral excellence. And yet, by writing these words, God does not cheat at all. He does not skimp at all in the revelation of his persons. This, This is a a good and reliable copy of his moral excellence. So when we speak of goodness, when we speak of righteousness, when we speak of uprightness and equity, uh, we can be sure that we have the mind of God when we understand his, his words in the Ten Commandments. And my friends, that is not something that we should take for granted. These are the first words that Herman Bavink opens up with in his, uh, in his Doctrine of God uh, when he writes his Reformed Dogmatics. That God is in and of himself incomprehensible, but as he reveals himself uh, to us in Scripture, he is the very God. And so we have some comprehension, true comprehension of God. And to think that God, who is all holy, would give us some glimmer of his 
of his excellent moral statute. And for us to be able to delight in that uh, is, well, is, is part of the joy, our everlasting joy in heaven, and is the, the beginning of our joy here. We truly know God, and we, knew, we truly know his righteousness and his goodness. So the transcript, it's a transcript of God's moral excellence and also a reminder of God's holiness. The second time this law is given, it'll be given on the plains uh, of Moab just before Israel uh, enters the promised land. And at that occasion, uh, God remains holy. He hasn't changed, but the thunder and the, and the fireballs and, and the lightning and the earthquake, they're not going to be there. All that is on, on Sinai now, so that Israel may, may learn that you just can't come up and meet with God just uh, at whim. No, he's holy. And holy things have to be kept apart from unholy, and we are unholy in our sins. But that lesson having been stated once, the transcript of his holiness is in the law. And everywhere that ark travels with the law in it is a reminder to Israel of the holiness of God. And in other words, the, the, the church of God ancient is being taught a little bit more about God's uh, holiness to remember it, not to always see it in such demonstrable forms as Mount Sinai, and by faith recall and act accordingly. The training wheels, you might say, for the young church. Underscoring the importance of the ten words as a revelation of God's preceptual will. Now, as far as God's decretal will, what God decrees is mysterious. And, and, and no one knows God's secret decrees until they come about. And But if, as soon as they come about, we, we see, well, God must have decreed that. And we say, that will be done. We don't know if someone tonight is going to lose their life on the intersection of West, of West Timer here. And, uh, and Gray Falls Drive or West Houston Center Parkway. We don't know. But once it happens, we say, well, verily, that man, his days were numbered and his, his, that was decreed from, from the moment of, of his birth and, be, and before the creation of the world, that man was to live and to die there. But that's a secret decree. And we ought not to pry into God's secrets. That's sorcery. We have no business trying to uncover what God has not revealed. But as far as his will for his creatures, what to obey? It is always right and is never wrong. I mean, excuse me, it's always right and never and always wrong. It's always right to obey it and, and always wrong to disobey a precept, that is to say, a, a commandment of God. This is his will. Uh, the secret things belong to the Lord, uh, but those, those things that have been revealed, they're for us and for our children. Deuter uh, Deuteronomy 29, verse 29. Um, the Ten Commandments were spoken by God because of the unique attributes of the moral law. You can see my previous sermon. That's all I'll say on this line. Especially compared to the revelation of the ceremonial and the civil law. Uh, again, those, those are commandments. And in recent times, I'd say in the last 30 years or so, there's been much ado about, well, there's really not that much difference between the Ten Commandments. It just goes straight, you know, as you read your scriptures, it goes straight into uh, the ceremonial and the civil law, civil law. And so really, I don't know why we need to make so much, uh, uh, so much attention to the Ten Commandments. Uh, that's really bad, that's really bad st uh, biblical study there. Uh, the rest of the revelation doesn't get near the attention that the moral law does. Uh, uh, anyway, uh, that point will be visited later, and I hope I can be proven that. Uh, that's why I think the Lord uh, reveals these words and does not keep Israel standing uh, while he narrates great great sections of the ceremonial law and the civil law 
uh, chapter by chapter, long, be a very long recitation by the Lord in that theophany before Israel, and that was not done. There is a distinction here between the moral law and the civil and the ceremonial. God's voice in the theophany greatly impressed Israel. They knew that this was something extremely uh, special. They feared this. Uh, after all, you know, even in the New Testament, when, when, when the disciples would see an angel, they, were, they always hit the deck. Uh, these glorious beings in shining light are enough to unnerve the best of us. But how much more so the glorious God of all, who speaks from a, a very fiery tempest in the mountain, and of course they called for Moses to mediate. They didn't want to have to deal with this themselves. They knew that they needed some help approaching God. And what a mediator does uh, is able to bring both sides together uh, in an equitable uh, fashion uh, for peace. For peace. So they called Moses to, uh, to intercede and to mediate. Now Moses is a mediator. Uh, he alone went up the mountain by God's own instruction. Moses' mediation, however, uh, was not only a, a practical thing, a practical thing, because he's going to bring back more than just uh, ten tablets. The Lord's going to be speaking to him a lot of words up there in those 40 days of spending with the Lord. But Moses' mediation was typical. That is to say, it was a picture of the true and the essential mediation of Christ, the only mediator between God and man. Uh, Moses uh, was a mediator between uh, uh, God and Israel, but the universal mediator and the true mediator is Christ himself. And I'll get to this in a second because we're going to, we're going to see that Christ is in here in the theophany even as a mediator himself. But Moses is just a type. Moses and the elders, uh, you might, if you read ahead or have read ahead, I hope you've read these sections of scripture before, but Moses and the, and the, and the elders actually uh, communed, they ate, they ate a meal with Jehovah on Mount Sinai uh, there, God called up the Moses and Aaron and her and uh, the elders, and they enjoyed a time, a communion table uh, up there. Now, in a theophany, it, this is only possible if uh, the person communicating to Israel was himself the angel of the covenant. That is to say, uh, the one who communed with the leadership of Israel there on Mount Sinai was the second person of the Trinity, Christ, technically not Jesus, because Jesus was named, born of Mary, all right? But Christ, uh, the everlasting Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, the second person of the Trinity, he in a theophany uh, would, from time to time, you, be, uh, make himself manifest, uh, incarnate in the, in the form of a man, the second person of the Trinity, and none other than Christ himself, uh, was there on the mount in communion with the leadership of Israel. Uh, I just mentioned two points where, uh, and I, again, you mustn't expect, <laughs> you mustn't expect the Old Testament uh, to let that cat out of the bag, as you say, uh, and, and teach you the whole of the biblical theology of the New Testament, because the whole design of the Old Testament is, speak to, is speaking to a, a, a nascent church, a, a, a church under age, uh, <laughs> as it were, making language easy, the types are easy. Let's say this is baby talk. But there's sufficient evidence here to show you 
that this angel of the covenant is the Lord himself, the mediator of the covenant of grace. I'll show you. Exodus 24, a little bit later on coming up in verse 9, Moses, Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel went up and they saw the God of Israel. Well, the scripture is very plain. No one has seen God. And God is immense. If we were to look at God before us, uh, looking straight ahead anywhere on the earth, we could not see all of God because there's, a, there's as much of God behind us and to either side outside of our peripheral vision as there is immediately before us. No one has seen his immensity. No one has seen a spirit like this. Human eyes and human flesh cannot see God. But in the theophany, when he makes himself uh, seen or uh, observable, he does it always in the second person uh, of the Trinity as a pre-incarnate Christ. All right? Again, that's Exodus 24, verse 9. Also Exodus 34, verse 5. Jehovah descended in the cloud and stood with him there. And that is to say, with Moses. He stood with him there and proclaimed the name of Jehovah. Now, that's the very same thing. It's reminiscent of Exodus chapter 3. We were there not long ago uh, with, the, uh, with Jehovah in the burning bush. Uh, he proclaimed his name. And in Exodus 6, again, he introduces himself as the I Am. So, uh, this is very important. Why? Why do I bring this up? Because Christ, being the mediator of the Mount Sinai Covenant, proves that this law was given by the hand of Christ. This is a covenant of grace. It's a, it's a covenant of grace being offered to Israel. In other words, this is a saving ordinance. Wherever Christ is, my friends, he brings his kingdom, he brings salvation. Wherever Christ is, and people say, well, I don't know, I don't know if I believe that the, that the, the Sabbath day, is, the Lord's day has been extended to Sunday. Christ appeared in his resurrected body to his disciples over and over and over again on that first, uh, on that eighth, yeah, on the first day of the week. And so the day that the Lord chooses to reveal himself and uh, the presence of the peop his people with him, that's rest. That's, that's salvation. God and his people. That's Sabbath. Everywhere Christ is, is rest and peace and salvation and Sabbath. All right. Christ being the mediator of the Mount Sinai covenant proves that this is a covenant of grace being offered to Israel. And this, my friends, is eternal salvation. And to think, to think disparagingly of the Mount Sinai covenant, as some Reformed people have taken liberty to do, is outrageous. And I'll continue to develop this case uh, in just a minute. The Ten Commandments were spoken directly by God before all of Israel, and for good reason. The second point of the sermon is this, that God prefaced the Ten Commandments with the strongest reasons, very strong reasons, the strongest of all reasons to keep them. And uh, here are really three sub-points, or really I could have made a, a longer outline, but the second point of the sermon has three sub-points. Reason one is that Jehovah, who is Lord himself, is God. That's the strongest reason. He has existence of himself, which is a glorious thing. There's nothing, and there's no one to compare to God in that, in that sense. He has all knowledge. He has all strength. Everything that has power and strength and agility, dexterity, movement, 
is, uh, has only been uh, decreed by him or given to them by the God who has all strength, all strength, all goodness is his, all power, etc. Well, such, uh, we see, for instance, magnificent horses in, at races. We see, we see great creatures in, in the depths of the sea, and we say, how magnificent. Look, look at the strength of that caudal fin on that, on that fish. But my friends, that's nothing compared to the magnificence of God. And so because he is God, he must be worshipped because our souls were created to acknowledge such a one as being imminent in all ways. And we, again, as I said this morning, we cheat ourselves if we don't worship God. All right. There is no lovelier. There is no more majestic. And I'm beginning to just now appreciate this word majestic. What does majestic mean? It means that there is a superlative power of authority in God where issues of not only temporal but everlasting life are in his hand and by his mouth. In other words, he can make a difference between blessing you and befriending you and you being overwhelming, happy, and safe. Or he can turn his face against you, become your enemy, and you become miserable and destitute and, and sh- full of shame and torment forever. And it's by his word and by his word alone that you are either blessed or cursed. That is his prerogative. He is king over all, majestic. There is no more glorious being. There is no more glorious being. That's great reasons. I am the Lord, your God. I am God the creator of all, the sustainer of all, the benefactor of all, the judge of all. The Ten Commandments then bind all men, Jew and Gentile, saved and unsaved, universally to obedience. And that's because even by nature, by creation, all men have the law of God uh, in their nature. Now that's in the fall, that's been much defaced. That's that's been much uh, ruined. Uh, the knowledge of God and our own, the man's own knowledge of self has now been blurred, uh, but that doesn't mean it's uh, irrecoverable because in the law, in the moral law, the essence of, God, of man's excellence is not intelligence. We are intelligence because, uh, in order to worship God who is intelligent and uh, be conformed to his everlasting image in righteousness. Intelligence is not to be maximized as an end to itself. It's glorious. Uh, Don't you know, it's wonderful to be around, intelligent, well-informed, well-instructed, knowledgeable people, but that's not an end to itself. All right. All men have a form then of this, of the knowledge. So so the Ten Commandments bind all. Uh, And so therefore we are, uh, we we are uh, required, all men. Now, this binding is in two sorts. And it's, this is exceedingly important. I, I, I cannot open this up this evening to its fullness. I can't. I can scarcely do it justice, but I will be repeating this instruction throughout all of this series on the Ten Commandments. These commandments that are set in stone to the unsaved, to those who have no faith, no living faith. Uh, I mean, they see the they see the theophany. They see that God is there, but they're not relying on on Him 
as their God, as their Redeemer for salvation. In other words, uh, they, they are afraid of God with a servile fear, not a reverent feel, fear uh, involving some mixture of, of, of love and no. But uh, theirs is a cringing fear as, be, as betakes, uh, betakes uh, is found in, the, in, in all uh, unregenerate, unsaved men. To this, the law and stone is a covenant of works. It's the same covenant that God made with Adam in the, the garden. Do this and live. Or don't do this. Don't eat of this fruit. In other words, obey my voice. Don't eat here and you'll live. Now, disobey my voice, eat of the fruit, and you die. You shall surely die. That's a covenant of works. Adam and his posterity would have lived forever. We would, have still, we would still be there enjoying all kinds of things. But Adam sinned. We all fell in him. We sinned in him and with him. In his first commandment, the covenant of works is broken. No mere man can keep it. And so this law, republished as it is, is a return to the original pristine arrangement of God because it reflects how God made man in his image, in his moral uprightness. He can give no other moral law but that nature that was in man pristinely in, Adam, in, uh, in Eden. And, and this is indeed what we have. But man in Eden once could keep the commandment of God not to eat, but no longer can. And so as a covenant of works to the unsaved, this law will frustrate, will condemn. And this is why men are, are so angry with God. They, they know in their conscience that these commandments are reasonable. If they're married, no one wants anybody to cheat, uh, take their wives. They, they don't want anybody to steal their property. They don't want anybody. To, if somebody kills their son, of course they know that's wrong. They know this is right. The commandments are right and just and equitable. But they cannot keep the commandments, not, not spiritually, not to the heart. And they know it. But this is a dreadful republishing of the covenant of works to the unsaved. But in the same ten words, the material ten words are the very same words, and they are not a covenant of works to believers. The, the material substance of the law, of the moral law, is in the hands of a gracious mediator, Christ, in the theophany, to a believer, is a rule of life. That is to say that this is the way, that this is the way that we enjoy communion. And, and John chapter 14 says as much, if you keep my words, my Father and I will come to you, and we will, we will, we will commune with you, we will, we will dwell with you. Because God loves holiness, and a regenerate heart, although he fails in so many ways to keep the law, loves holiness, and, and God himself is holy. So all of these terms are equitable and right as a rule of life. Both are here. Again, great confusion today. I pity people who don't have time to study. That's why I'm giving you this, uh, this sermon with such detail and with such emphasis. Please see me. Don't read much of the literature. It's trash. A lot of trash coming out in published forms from, from very good publishing houses too. All intended to help, and all, and all it's doing is confusing people and letting them to despair. The Ten Commandments therefore bind all men, Jew and Gentile, saved and unsaved, universally to obedience, because all men have this law in themselves in some way or another, some fashion or himself. All right? 
Now, if it weren't for the case, we couldn't, we couldn't even evangelize. How is anyone going to evangelize if we don't first uh, let people know, you know, you've sinned and you owe God a, a, debt, a debt for your sin. And not only do you uh, owe God a debt, but you, you owe God, if you're going to come to him, you need to, you need to stand before him in righteousness. And this law says God is holy. And this, these are the terms of righteousness. You can't evangelize without the law. And so it's a universal teaching that must be applied because that is the, the original intent behind creation and the original intent of restoration in the times of refreshing, that is to say, in redemption. Jehovah's covenant people then are greatly advantaged. They're covenant people coming out of Egypt. They have, this, they have a, a great advantage in having the ten words because the law convinces and convicts of sin that people may flee to the ordinances presented in the ceremonial law shortly following. We'll get to that. I'm not going to preach the serially through that, but just give you some of the highlights in the coming chapters. All right? The law convinces the, the, the signs of, uh, of the, uh, the sacrifices and the ceremonies and all that are intended to show Christ in picture form. The promises also of the prophets will, will, will offer gospel peace, reconciliation through the mediator. But the law convinces and convicts of sin in terrifying ways. Now, you who are a Christian, I trust that you have found the, the, the terror and the weight and the threat of conscience. And that can't be dismissed as some psychological trick that some mean minister is, is bearing down to you from the pulpit. No, that's God himself speaking to you in conscience. And that conscience will always be with you. That conscience will always be with you, and so you must tend to it, and, 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 and you must be very sure that Christ is cleansing it, uh, cleansing it from dead works, cleansing it from the guilt and stain but the law also, my friends, as far as the believers uh, go, it shows you the very best life for all men now. For those who are regenerate, even in the Old Testament, it shows them the holy way, which makes for blessedness, which makes for communion with God. Uh, so, and that's the whole idea behind the sanctification. Wash your clothing for three days. Don't go near any women. The, the idea is... Be distinct. Be a separate people to God because God is your life. God is your happiness. God is your all in all. That's what's being said here. And then to turn this around and to make it into a, a, a tempest of fury and a covenant of a holy of works. Wow. The law of itself is good and prescribes the best life even for an unregenerate man in this life. You can do no better even if you were not Christian than attempt to keep the law. You will have a more orderly life. Your, your family will be much better off. And you will show a, a, a greater wisdom than most uh, degenerate philosophers and thinkers even of, of today. All right. God prefaced these Ten Commandments then for the strongest reasons because he himself is God. And God is our all in all, including our happiness, our blessedness, etc. Reason number two, Jehovah himself... This is a surprise. Jehovah himself offers himself. There's an offer here, a promise in the law, in the preface. And he offers himself to be their God. Now, just because they were brought out of Egypt, and as it were, a, a, a lassoed, and uh, what do you do when you, when you take a herd of cattle and you drove them, you drove them from Egypt into, uh, all the way to Mount Horeb here, like cattle, that doesn't mean that God is your God. What he means is the law is spiritual and that God is to be your God in, in spirit, in heart, and in sincerity. And that's what God is offering 
himself to be to Israel. I am the Lord your God that has brought you out of Egypt. The offer then is a sincere offer. Not only that Israel would be their prized possession in, in mass, but that God would be the personal God of every believer. The offer is sincere. The offer is by covenant. It could not be a stronger legal or justifying arrangement. The offer must be acted upon. How? In sincerity by faith. You know, the ordinances are all there, and they point to the fact that this is the way. But the signs in the ordinances do not save. The signs only point to the Savior, the mediator. They give some attribute or promise of God, and they remind you of the work of God himself, what he's doing in the spirit. Circumcision externally doesn't profit anybody. Uh, that is to say, salvifically. But salvation, uh, but circumcision of the heart, that's salvation. That's a work of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. It was promised to all those uh, that believed on, on the Lord uh, in that day. That is to say, the promise of Christ. Uh, everyone who believed in, in Christ, the mediator, uh, and the forgiveness offered in, in, in the Son as the Lamb of God, uh, received that gracious, uh, was, uh, received that gracious offer. So, there, so God, uh, Jehovah offers himself to be their God. And God is already uniquely Israel's God. You might say that Israel already, in some way, is Israel's husband taking care of uh, his, his bride. Uh, I, I will say this, since Christ here appears to Israel in nascent form, in, in, the, the theology is, of course, very primitive, but Trinity, as the second person of the, of the Trinity, Christ uh, would exemplify all the offices needed for complete salvation for Israel, king and prophet and priest. Now, this is testified in the fact that in Israel, those are the three offices uh, that uh, would run and rule the nation. Uh, again, as foreshadows of the one, uh, well, the one man who held all three offices uh, consummately, and so um, what we are offering here is not a, a a probable salvation or something that you know the Jews will have their their uh, salvation. They'll have their Jerusalem, but we we will stand to to inherit uh, another inheritance. No, uh, there's a complete salvation being offered to Israel as to everyone who believes in the mediator of the covenant of grace. Christ, the second person of the Trinity then, uh, is the one that is being offered. And this is the gospel in, in, a, in, a, in the nut, not the, full, not the full gospel that we would go out with today. No, we have to go out with a story about his resurrection, his death, burial, ascension. We have to mention uh, his virgin birth, that he was divine and all. There's much more to the gospel that we communicate today. But for that nascent people, uh, there's enough here to hint already that the gospel and grace is given to us in the preface of the law. And that is a notion that's very, very far from people today. Uh, but here it is. The, reason, the third reason is that Jehovah God has already redeemed and offers to be their complete redeemer. Uh, again, there's an intersector overlap with what I'm already saying. God physically redeemed Israel from slavery. Um, and then the gospel offer here now is for Jehovah to be their complete redeemer, body, and soul. By God physically redeeming them, uh, remember uh, what, has, what we've already preached is that God had purchased them from great danger, from slavery, from, from absolute tyranny, 
at the price of their firstborn. Uh, that's what it means to redeem in this narrative of Exodus. And, uh, and now the servants of, of Pharaoh have become, by their, that redemption, servants of Jehovah. Uh, in other words, they're not free to just run around wild in the, in the wilderness, just riding camels. Just, no, they, they are free to serve Jehovah. And uh, that, my friends, is the only freedom that the Bible speaks of. We are uh, in chains as sinners to sin. And the only liberty that the Bible knows is liberty to serve God. Even Paul, the apostle, in a Roman prison, was as free as any person could possibly be because he was serving the Lord in the spirit of Christ. The gospel offer in the preface to Jehovah uh, is for Jehovah to be their complete redeemer. The law here will be shown to have civil power in this theocracy, and there will be uh, civil punishments, penal punishments for transgression. The law has spiritual power to condemn um, this church spiritually as well. In other words, the law, moral law governs both the ceremonial in application, the moral law also governs uh, the civil law in application. Application, again, is, is, are, the, are the, uh, the precepts of God applied equitably and wisely in time and place. When God does it, it's perfect. His ministers, when will the prophets do it? If they're inspired, it's perfect. They announce the will of God by application. And in that sense, all of the Bible is but a footnote to the ethics of the moral law. Now, when a, when a minister preaches, he does his best to, to keep the equity and the truth of it. Uh, and we do make mistakes, but we will chance it. We must apply the law. Because uh, if anything, it's just one reason, is you have to learn how to apply the law yourself. And if you're afraid you're going to be making mistakes by not applying the teaching of Scripture, you may not apply it at all. But if you don't apply it at all, you're doomed. You're just doomed. You have to obey. If not, if not you prove yourself to be absolutely lawless and no Christian. I know, you're not saved by works. But if there's no demonstrable works, there's no demonstrable faith or true Christianity. The gospel then redeems from this threat of condemnation. The gospel, even in the, in the law, as the preface, redeems at the hands of the mediator, Christ, the second person in this theophany, from the dominion and from the threatening, from the condemning power of God's law which as set in stone as a covenant of works, it will surely do. It will surely do. It will condemn anyone who is not regenerate in Israel. God, the gospel is preached in, 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 all, of this, in all of this form, equitable to God's law in the Ten Commandments, in the ceremonial law and by the prophets, and it's preached in promises, it's preached in prophecies, it's preached in sacrifices, in circumcision, which is the sacrament, as I mentioned before, as the Passover is the same sacrament today as the Lord's Supper, and other types and other ordinances, which all, all of these foresignified Christ then to come. He was coming and were sufficient in that time unto salvation through faith to all who believed. And this is not my teaching. This is the Westminster Larger Catechism, uh, question and answer 34. So you can, re you can review that. But what I'm saying here is the gospel is, uh, uh, is the counterpart part to the terror 
and spectacle of Sinai to unconverted men under the covenant of works. And then, once converted, converted souls love to maintain the glory of God and His holiness. And all of this is, all of this spectacle that would otherwise scare uh, everyone away, sinners away, it, it becomes something to cheer. Uh, good, glory, this is glorious. God is with us and, and He's a consuming fire. All that's going to be left at the end is holiness unto the Lord. And the saint welcomes that. The saint, the saint has a savor for holiness. Jehovah then offers Israel what? At Sinai. Sinai? Yeah, a law set in stone. But the offer is the mediator, Christ. Because he says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. He is the redeemer. He bought you. We were bought. We were purchased. And now we are God's possession, his own prized possession. Jehovah offers the one redeemer of God's elect to spiritually, not just physically, he's already redeemed them physically, but to spiritually redeem all who believe and receive his offer to be their God, a sincere and gracious offer to sanctify all those who believe and receive this offer. He'll do it in time saying, wash your clothes. I don't want anybody coming up near the mountain, but everybody cleanse their, soul, their, their clothes and no contact with women. All these things are saying, set yourselves apart to save all who believe and receive this offer so they can enter God's everlasting rest. It's all about God dwelling with his people forever. The, the God's visit to the camp was a token and a foretaste of his everlasting dwelling. He, God visits to test his people or to communicate his people, but he visits in order to dwell. That is a pattern that is over and over and over throughout all the scriptures. God visits. His intention is to prepare his people for a dwelling, an everlasting dwelling. And that's what God is doing. Even in this visit uh, in, at Sinai. And the good news is that because Jehovah, the Redeemer, is God, nothing can frustrate this plan. This is his purpose. He has decreed it, and this is uh, for his elect Israel. Uh, that, that is the conclusion of uh, the last reason, the third reason. Uh, Jehovah God has already redeemed and now offers to be a complete redeemer to Israel. And all of this, my friends, is, is said in the preface that we might have strong reason not only to hear Jehovah, but to believe Jehovah for all that he means to Israel. So to conclude, in the preface to the Decalogue, Jehovah himself explains why you're bound to keep all his commandments expressly because he, he alone is God and he is your God by offer and you're the Redeemer also by offer. You know, my friends, all who hear Jehovah's gracious offer in the preface of the Ten Commandments and, and truly understand God's reasoning will, will respond with a reverent awe and, uh, and, and even joy at such a proposal. You know, men rejoice at the prospect of making a fortune. Let's, let's say we, we have a reasonable chance at making a, a, a real significant for, fortune. Right, let's, let's just set a number, $20 billion. You've got a reasonable chance. Most of you would bite. $20, $20 billion? That's a, that's a lot. There's more here 
than that paltry sum for Israel. No one can buy everlasting life. Nobody can buy friendship with God. Nobody can buy joy everlasting without pain, without tears. Holiness, righteousness, knowledge. It's an inestimable gift. And that, my friends, is, is more than merely suggested on Mount Sinai. The Ten Commandments as a covenant of works is to those who forego Jehovah's offer of redemption. It's for those who try to scale the mountain without a mediator. It is for those who say, oh, this is, a, I don't know, maybe Moses picked up some tricks in Egypt and oh, this is smoke and mirrors. Nadab and Abihu, who communed with God at the table there with the 70, will be swallowed up in fire because they transgressed a simple ordinance. Use the sacred fire. Don't use strange fire for your sacrifices. They disrespected God. They were consumed. Aaron, their father, had to swallow his pride. Moses says, don't you dare mourn the passing of those two sons of yours. Don't you dare mourn. That's hard. But that's for those who take this testimony lightly, who set aside the commands of God nilly-willy, who explain it through some sort of newfangled modern theology that, oh, yeah, but you know, now we can make images of God because Jesus was in the image of God, and so we just make it. Or the fourth commandment, yeah, well, all that was fulfilled. What commandment wasn't fulfilled? Guys, come on, let's, let's think a little. What commandment did Jesus not fulfill? And of course, there, those, those people, Moses, Aaron, Abihu, and, and uh, Nadab, Communing with the seven elders, don't you know that they had rest? They had their Sabbath on the mountain enjoying the Lord. Their souls were delighted. And yet, my friends, we, we speak of the Sabbath as something that's just, oh, it's a, it's a burden. How legalistic. What we're saying is here, why don't you dine with God? He's invited you to a feast. That's what keeping Sabbath and the fourth commandment is all about. We throw away these, these, these commandments as if we, they were just typos in your Bible. We will pay heavily for that stupidity. God will visit us with stripes. He's already, he's already wetting his whip on this nation. If the church doesn't repent, we can see a lot of chastening or worse in the days to come. But if you're not regenerate, you'll, you will find not the second and fourth commandments burdensome, you'll find the whole of the law an insufferable burden until you run to Christ as a strong tower and seek shelter in his righteousness. But now the Ten Commandments as a rule of life will be a cheerful goal, a delightful goal, Look what the psalm that we said. We, 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 we will serve you, says Psalm 110, in the day of your power. They will, your people will gladly serve you in the day of your power. That means that the yoke of Christ in walking with Christ, receiving the law from the hands of Christ as a rule of life, is an easy yoke. It's a yoke. There's work to be done, but it's an easy yoke. My burden is easy. My, my yoke is light. 
and your soul will find rest. Why? Because Christ is there with you in fellowship. And where Christ is, there's Sabbath. That's Sabbath. The Ten Commandments as a rule of life will be cheerful to all who love Jehovah, who love holiness, who hate tyranny, who hate the corruption of sin, who hate idolatry. So you can gauge your heart as to how you relate to these ten. But my friends, I'll conclude by saying that Jehovah's free offer to you by way of covenant today is, is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. I've already explained that he is the only mediator, really, between God and man. He's the only one that can affect and strike a peace by contract, by covenant. He is your righteousness, having in your place fulfilled all these Ten Commandments and more. He is your, uh, he is your lamb uh, and your high priest, too, who, uh, who will, as the victim, uh, present his blood in payment for your debt. And as the priest, uh, pr uh, present, present that, that blood himself. He's both victim and, vict and uh, vicar, you might say. So what is presented to us is the off at this mountain is life and death. Choose the way of life by grace or choose death. The way of, of life is one of, of, of righteousness and attributing to God his glory and saving his people as their God. And only God can save and no commandment keeping will ever, ever save you. You're not justified by works. That's what Adam failed and what everyone else in the world will always fail. But Christ gives us a new, a new head himself, a new covenant of grace. And in him, we cannot fail because his righteousness is divine. And that righteousness is yours, even the righteousness of God through faith in him. That's the gospel. Believe in it, hold it, and, and rest in it. And then delight yourself in all of God's teaching. He will not condemn you when you fail. He will pick you up, dust you off, rinse you, and forgive you. And that is the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Now, Lord, as we have plied your prophecy, we pray that these, uh, these words would sink into our hearts and that we would rejoice in the goodness of our God, who uh, only, Lord, offers us goodness uh, as our God in Christ and everlasting peace and well-being. Blessed Lord, be glorified in all that you have revealed yourself to be to us, especially in the mediator Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. Let's sing our last hymn, and that is, Redeemed How I Love to Proclaim It.